following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 17. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, just a note to any of you who might be watching for the first time. Uh, we, we're really glad that you would choose to be with us. Uh, we are a simple church uh, that's about loving Jesus, worshiping Jesus together as a family on mission. And I hope that you'll get to visit us in person uh, really soon. Acts chapter 17 is where we are. I have said this at nauseum, but Acts, the book of Acts, is all about the power of God unleashed through his people, the church. And uh, we, we have covered so far in these first 16 chapters of the book of Acts, roughly 20 to 25 years of the life of the early church. Last week, we looked at how the gospel first moved onto the continent of Europe when Paul and others uh, brought the gospel to the city of Philippi and made the first converts there. Now, that wasn't without opposition. Uh, Paul, Silas were arrested and beaten and jailed um, and, and we see this pattern that has happened and will continue to happen in the book of Acts, and that is when there's opportunity for the gospel, there's also opposition. Because the word of God, the gospel of God, is polarizing. It just is. Now, we're not strangers to polarization. We live in a very polarized culture right now. Uh, it seems like we are at opposite ends of the spectrum about just about everything, right? Uh, politics and science and COVID and all kinds of stuff, important things, but non-essential things, which kind of shows you where our priorities lie. Uh, but I would ask, how, do, how have you seen people respond to the word? How have you seen people respond to the gospel? Uh, because it has been said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Uh, there's a polarizing effect to the word of God. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at Acts chapter 17. So I'm going to read for us uh, the first 15 verses of Acts chapter 17. Uh, we'll finish the rest of Acts 17 next week, but um, you can follow along. The text will be on the screen, uh, but I'd encourage you to look at your own Bible as well if you have a copy of God's word uh, nearby. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1, uh, says this. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are, all, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar and saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers, 
immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This then is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, so much for the opportunity through technology uh, to continue to be able to minister to the people of God, even though we cannot be gathered together uh, in the same room this morning. And so I pray that for those who are joining us, those who will tune in later or listen to this podcast, that they would be blessed as they hear the word of God proclaimed. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill me and empower me to be able to rightly divide this word and that something that is said today would encourage, would challenge, and would just make Jesus all the more real to our hearts. I pray this for your glory in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to go ahead and give you the first point. It comes from the first four verses of Acts chapter 17, and it's this. The word can be persuasive. The word can be persuasive. You know, Paul and Silas, uh, when they were in Philippi, they were arrested and beaten and thrown in jail and all that. If you remember from last week's study, uh, an earthquake happens in the middle of the night. All the chains fall off and the prison doors open, and yet none of the prisoners escape. It's like the worst prison break ever. Uh, But the jailer doesn't know that. It's very dark, and he thinks everyone is gone. And when he wakes up and realizes the prison doors are open, his life is going to be on the line, right? They're going to punish him. The The Romans are. So he's about to kill himself when Paul cries out, hey, don't do it. Don't do it. We're all still here. And in a moment, the jailer realizes his need for the things of God. He comes to Paul and says, how may I be saved? And Paul explains the gospel to him. He's saved, he tends to their wounds, feeds them. Uh, And then the next day, uh, the magistrates want to let Paul and Silas go. They think a a night in jail and a good beating is enough, uh, but they don't realize that Paul and Silas are actually Roman citizens, which is a no-no. And so Paul makes a big stink about it, uh, and they kind of apologize and send Paul and Silas off quietly, which means they have to leave the city. They visit Lydia, who was the first Philippian convert, the rest of this newly established church there in the city of Philippi, and then they peace out. And they head into further the region of Macedonia. Uh, We have a map. I'll just sort of pop up here real quick for you. Uh, If you remember this, uh, Paul and Silas had left uh, Asia, the the pink there in the middle. The top left is Troas. That's where they had been. um, They leave there, go to Philippi in the top left uh, in the orange. That's Macedonia. And now they're going to be making their way through these other towns. They're going to big cities. Paul likes to start his ministry in big cities because that's the hub, the center of culture and commerce and all that. And if he can make converts there, it is very likely that the gospel will spread into all the other small towns. It's a similar strategy that we have, planting a church in Asheville. And now we've been able to see churches planted in places like Spruce Pine and Morganton uh, and even Waynesville coming uh, in 2022. So um, they're making their way around south, southwest 
uh, around this region of the coast of Greece, and uh, that's where they're going to continue ministering. That's where Thessalonica is located. So they're, they're going to Thessalonica. This is about a 100-mile journey from Philippi. It's a very important port city. It is the capital of Macedonia, and unlike Philippi, uh, they actually have Jews there because there's a synagogue. Um, Paul's MO was to go to synagogues first, right? He was saw himself as an apostle or a, a missionary to the Jews. So he would minister to Jews first. He would go in, open the Jewish scriptures, show them Jesus, make converts, and then he'd have a sort of a good core group for the rest of his ministry in that city. So this is what he does. He goes to the synagogue. Um, he begins to open their Bible and point them to Jesus, which I think is a, a beautiful strategy for the Jews, right? He's meeting them where they are. Uh, next week, when he goes to the Greeks in Athens, we'll see him use a completely different strategy for reaching them about Jesus. But here he is, reasoning with them from the scriptures. This word reason, uh, we get our word dialogue from it. Okay? So he's not, just, he's not just telling them about Jesus, he's conversing with them. And I think this is a really important key for us when we think about what it means to evangelize or what it means to share our faith, is that it's not always our sales pitch about Jesus to other people as much as it is a dialogue with people about spirituality and the things of God and the Bible and who Jesus is. Listening is just as much a part of evangelism as proclaiming. And so that's what Paul is doing. He's dialoguing or debating or reasoning with them from the scripture. He's also explaining and proving. We see that in the next verse there, right? Verse three, that he's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, that's the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead. So this is the first thing Paul has to do. He has to untangle their theological knots about the Messiah. The Jews largely thought that the Messiah was going to come in power and with authority, and he was going to overthrow the Roman government and sort of reestablish Israel you know, as, as his chosen people uh, who will rule the world, okay? Um, they missed it a little bit, right? Uh, Jesus ultimately is triumphant, but he came in humility. The Messiah came um, and, and was unrecognizable. He came and was beaten and bloodied and bruised and ultimately hung on a cross. And so what Paul has to do is, from their Bible, show them that the, the promises of the Messiah also include his suffering. So I have to imagine that he took them to a place like Isaiah 53, which is very clear that the promised one is also the suffering servant, that by his stripes we are healed, you know, that he is pierced for our transgressions. And so he does that first, probably uses Psalm 22 and other, other passages. And then he has to show them that Jesus is the one who fulfilled those messianic promises, those prophecies. So, so that's sort of his dual role. He's explaining that the Messiah had to suffer, and then he's showing them that Jesus is the one who fulfilled those promises uh, among 300 different messianic promises that are in the Old Testament scripture. The other thing I want you to just be aware of is that he reasoned with them. Now, I, I've already talked about that word, meaning dialogue, but I also want you to understand that the Christian faith is reasonable. I mean, yeah, there's some parts that are hard to believe or that seem a little wacky to, to others when we think about a virgin giving birth to a, a child who's both God and man at the same time, right, who lives a sinless life, who dies and then rises again and then ascends into heaven and then is gonna come back to judge the living and the dead on a white horse. Like, I, I get that some of that sounds far fetched. And yet, the Christian faith is reasonable. Any reasonable person who is sincerely seeking truth can open up the Bible and, and see these promises and their fulfillment. They can see 
who Jesus is, who God says Jesus is. They can see the connection between Old and New Testament. They can see how these promises and prophecies get fulfilled in the promised one, Jesus. And they can see that salvation is just about receiving what Christ has done with the empty hands of faith. The problem is, many people see Christianity or already assume that Christianity is unreasonable. And so they never actually investigate it. So if that's you, I would challenge you to open a Bible and to begin reading. If you are sincerely seeking the truth, God will reveal it to you in his scripture. And you might just be persuaded to follow Jesus. This is what happens. As Paul's reasoning in the synagogue, some believed. They were persuaded to follow Jesus. Right? They, they, it says that they joined Paul and Silas, but what that means is they surrendered their life to Jesus and they became disciples under the leadership of Paul and Silas and even Timothy. Some believed. Now, this is interesting, right? He's using their Bible, he's explaining, and he's proving from their scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet only some believe. I think Paul had that expectation. In 1 Corinthians 9, he reminds us that uh, he has become all things to all people, Uh, so that by all means he might win some. He knew that the word of God is polarizing. He knew that some would be persuaded to come to faith in Christ and others would not. But he preached to all so that he might win some. And yet a great many of the Greeks, non-Jews who heard about the Jewish Messiah from the Jewish scriptures, they believed. And then Luke says, not a few, which is his way of saying a whole lot, of the influential women. We see women coming to faith in droves in the latter parts of the book of Acts. It's really beautiful to see that. And so the church here in Thessalonica is off to a great start. There's lots of new Christians. They're eager to follow Jesus through the leadership of Paul and Silas and Timothy. And the church will take root here in Thessalonica. Paul later will write two different letters to this church in order to encourage them. And uh, just real briefly, it's not going to be on the screen here, but I want to read for you just a couple of passages uh, from his first letter to the Thessalonians so that you can see his heart for these people because he wasn't just coming in with a sales pitch about the gospel and then, and then piecing out. He loved them. He cared for them. He was vulnerable with them um, because he saw the importance of them coming to faith and them being united as a family, the family of God. So uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, he says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. He goes on to say in chapter two, uh, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, that's what we saw last week in chapter 16, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. He goes on there to say, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And then he says down in verse 13 of chapter two, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So the word of God is polarizing, but it is persuasive. Some believe, 
in Jesus through the gospel. And Paul celebrates that in his letter to the Thessalonians. But not everyone was happy to receive the word of God. So this is where we pick up with our second point from verses 5 through 9. And that is, the word can be offensive. The word can be offensive. Let's just look at it briefly again here. But the Jews, verse 5, were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble. I just love that verse. (laughs) Wicked men of the rabble. Uh, I I looked this up in the King James because I I thought it would be fun. And um, this verse translates as lewd fellows of the baser sort, (laughs) which I think is hilarious, right? I mean, lewd fellows of the baser sort. Like, where do you find these fellows, right? It says they're in the marketplace, I suppose. He he goes and he finds these wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting this, these men have turned the world upside down. Isn't that interesting? Now, we've seen this before. Um, Acts 13 comes to mind. When the Gentiles, the non-Jews, they heard the gospel. They were astounded at this good news, and they came to faith. But the Jews largely were jealous and they were threatened. And there's a couple reasons for that. Maybe three that came to my mind. One, the gospel is an affront to a life that is centered on self-justification. So though God's heart was not for them to have to prove themselves to God, the entire reason for the Old Testament law system was for them to realize they can't measure up and they need a savior. And yet God's people had relied on their good works and their ability to obey the 613 commands of the Old Testament law uh, and, and to prove their worth to God. Now, you don't have to be a religious person to be someone who suffers from self-justification. Many of us are trying to prove our worth to this world. Whether it's to God or our boss or our coach or our parents or our spouse or significant other or just ourselves. Many of us fall into the trap of of proving that we are worthy of something. And and a message of of salvation by grace through faith runs counter to self-justification. And so I can imagine these Jews thought it ludicrous. It's an affront. What do you mean just trust in Jesus and you're saved? No, 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 no. You've got to do stuff. You've got to prove yourself. And so uh, it angered them, but also embarrassed them. Because what Paul is saying is that the Messiah had already come and they missed him. Like these Jews were so focused on the word of God. Like they, they, they had memorized the scripture. They knew the promises of God. And for them to have to admit that they missed the Messiah, I mean, they couldn't bring themselves to it. Quick story, a couple years ago, uh, we took a mission trip from Missio to Tanzania to visit our compassion centers. And uh, I was doing a preaching at a conference over there. And um, we had a return flight. Actually, we flew through uh, the city of Abu Dhabi uh, on the way there and on the way back. But on the way back, our flight got in at, at like 11 p.m. or something. It was still like 100 degrees outside, just so you know. And um, our flight was going to leave to go back to the U.S. at like, I don't know, 5 in the morning or something. So rather than just hang out in the terminal, we said, let's get some hotel rooms. We'll get a quick shower and take a nap or whatever, and then we'll meet back here at like 3 a.m. and be ready for our flight. So we do all that, and our whole team, there's like six or eight of us, we gather up in the airport, and we get to the... Uh, we get to 
where we're going to go to the gate, and we find out that um, customs, U.S. customs, is, on, is in country. Uh, instead of going through customs in the U.S., we would do it before we got on the plane. And it closed at midnight. And we're going, well, we didn't know about this. And they said, well, it's on your ticket. And I look at my ticket, and my ticket's handwritten because the printers in Tanzania were broken, so they wrote them by hand. So there's nothing on the ticket. Uh, they, nevertheless, they won't let us through. And we have to watch through a glass wall our plane uh, load up and take off without us. And I'm starting to look around, and all of a sudden, I see on the walls all around me these signs that say, you must go through U.S. Customs before you get on your plane. It was very clear, but we missed it. And therefore, had to book all new flights and fly through London. It was a whole nightmare. I got back a day late or two days late. But anyway, my whole point in that is, it's easy sometimes to miss the obvious Okay, um, these people, these Jews missed the Messiah, even though the, the signs were all around them. The third reason that I think they were opposed to this, they were threatened by uh, Paul and this message of the gospel, is that more Christians would automatically mean less Jews because they are converting to Christianity, which means less power, less influence, less income in their synagogues. And so they gather together and say, we must stop this. So they find some lewd fellows of the baser sort. <laughs> they gang up on this poor guy named Jason. We don't know anything about Jason. I think it was an assumption uh, from Luke that the, the first hearers of this letter uh, would have known Jason, um, right? But we don't know anything about him. Was, the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us was written to someone else, and, and, and they knew who Jason was. All we can assume is that maybe he was someone like Lydia, who had come to faith in Christ, right, and opened up his home. He was generous, and he showed hospitality to Paul and Silas and Timothy. They go looking for these men, can't find them, so they haul Jason before the authorities. And here's the accusation. These men have turned the world upside down. And I'm thinking to myself, what a compliment! <laughs> Now, obviously, they didn't mean it like that, but it is. It's a compliment. The gospel, these Christians have turned the world upside down, where we know the kingdom actually turns things right side up, right? The world has been upside down since that great thud in the garden when our first parents decided to disobey the gracious authority of God and do their own thing, right? It, it totally turned everything upside down. Sin disorients our souls, and sin, very briefly, is just choosing to be your own authority. Rejecting God's authority and making yourself your own authority. And, and you, the decisions that we make that are based in us being our own authority always turn us upside down. It disorients our souls. So here are these, this rabble who are accusing Christians of this. They're saying they are upending the way that the world operates but they're not doing it with armies. They're not doing it by politics. They're not doing it by control or power. How are they doing it? By everyday people representing King Jesus. In the joy of the Christian, in the way that Christians show honor, in the way Christians exhibit freedom, freedom in Christ, uh, in the way that Christians show humility, in the way that we sacrificially um, 
show love to others through acts of goodness and kindness, right? That, that is how we are upending the world. And here, it was noticeable. Like, it's almost like they were ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through them. And I, I, I read this, and I think about this, and I go, what if, what if we, our church, what if the churches in our city actually lived like this? That we were known not so much for what we are against, but by how we live in our love, in our joy, in our freedom, in our humility, in our acts of service and kindness to those. Is it obvious, brother or sister, that you follow a different king? Is it obvious in our lives, is it obvious to those around us that we follow a different king than everyone else in the world follows? It ought to be. Because there is another king Actually, there's only one king. His name is Jesus. All others, Caesar, any world leader, any U.S. president, is a poor imitator. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Christ. Jesus is King. He is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, upholding the world by the word of his power. That's Hebrews chapter 1. All right? All things were made by him and through him. And not anything was made that wasn't made by him or through him. John 1. Um, Philippians 2. Though he was God, he didn't count divinity a thing to be worthy, but he, he set it aside and he humbled himself and went to the cross in our place. He died and he rose again. And he's seated at the right hand of God. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus, God in the flesh, came to earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life that you and I could never, ever, ever live hard as we try. He died the death that we deserve taking all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our guilt and all of our failure and all of our stupidity and all of our foolishness on himself. And he absorbed the the judgment of God in our place. And he died and he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, conquering death and sin and hell for you and for me. And he lived again for 40 days on the earth. He ascended back into heaven and he will return one day to judge the living and the dead. You will bow, or you will bow. But for anyone who surrenders their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ, for anyone who receives with empty hands the finished work of Christ on the cross, we can be freed. Freed from what? Freed from our upside-down thinking. Freed from our upside-down behaviors. Freed from our upside-down motives or upside-down perspectives on things. And who doesn't want to be freed from upside-down thinking and perspectives and behaviors? That's what is on offer in Jesus Christ, and yet it can be offensive. Because in our pride, we like the upside-down. We like our way of life without being interrupted by God. So 
they bring Jason before these men. He has to actually put up a cash guarantee that Paul's not going to cause any more trouble in the city. And they let him go. So clearly they didn't really see them as that big of a threat. Um, not an insurrectionist as he was accused of being. But Paul clearly has to get out of Dodge, and that's what he does. They send him away in the night. Now, I'm going to give you my last point, and then we'll look at these last few verses here. Um, Though the word can be persuasive, the word can also be offensive, the heart must be receptive. The heart must be receptive. Look at verse 10 with me. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Although these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. I'll just stop there. So it's best to get out of Thessalonica. That's what Paul does. Uh, Paul and Silas in the middle of the night kind of sneak out. They go 50 miles to Berea. Now, Berea is not a big city. It's just sort of a, I don't know, little town on the side of the road uh, on this um, Roman sort of highway. And you'd think, okay, you know, beat up in Philippi, opposed in Thessalonica. Maybe now is time for a little break. You know, we'll just get us a Motel 6 and chill out for a couple days by the pool. It'll be great. Nope. (laughs) Immediately right back to the synagogue. It makes me wonder how Silas felt about the sprinter's pace that Paul ran at. You know, he's just going, 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 going. The text tells us that the Bereans were more noble. What does that mean? It means that they were open-minded. They were thoughtful. They were fair. Um, In other words, they hadn't already made up their mind about the Messiah. They were open to what was true, even if it meant they had to change wonder if there's a lesson in there for us. It seems to me that most, especially in our day and age, um, decide what we believe, and then we find voices and positions that reinforce our view. And look, I just want to be straight with you. Um, that is not helpful. It's not helpful with COVID stuff. It's not helpful with politics, and it's outright dangerous when it comes to Scripture. Deconstruction is in vogue right now, uh, has been for the last year or two. And it's this idea of sort of dismantling the things that you were raised with. And, and I'll tell you, um, there, is a lot, there are a lot of knots that need to be untangled within evangelicalism. So I'm all for that. The problem is no one wants to reconstruct. And if you only deconstruct, you end up with rubble. You must also reconstruct. And reconstructing means approaching God, approaching the scripture humbly and honestly with an open heart to be willing to change. But what I see too often is people coming to God, coming to the scriptures, with beliefs that they are unwilling to budge on. Beliefs about humanity and sin, beliefs about sexuality and gender, beliefs about uh, money and politics and income and all those kind of things, and, and they are unwilling to believe, to accept, to wrestle with what the Scripture says about those things. 
And so they, th- they, they disregard God and his word. And, and that is disingenuous to the process. These Bereans received the word with eagerness. I hope you and I are like that. I, I hope that when you read the Bible on your own, I hope that when you hear the word of God proclaimed, that you are eager to receive it because you know that it comes from a God in heaven who loves you and has given you his word for your good. So they were examining the scriptures for themselves. They're diving into the text and when Paul says it to them, they're gonna double check. They're gonna look for themselves. And I hope you do that too. Don't just take Paul's word for it. Don't just take my word for it or Tim Mackey or Matt Chandler or whoever else you like to listen to. Open the Bible on your own. Read it. More importantly, let it read you. Let, let the scripture shape your doctrine. Don't let your doctrine shape your view of Scripture. I believe, I sincerely believe in the power of God to work by the Spirit of God through the Word of God in your soul if you are receptive. And so the text tells us that Many, therefore, believe they are receiving the word with eagerness. They're checking it for themselves, seeing that that what Paul told them was actually true. And so many, therefore, believed. Why? Because Paul had explained and proved it from the word. They received it. So many believed, not just some this time, but many. But as has happened before, the angry Jews also hear about it. The Jews at Thessalonia, uh, Thessalonica travel 50 plus miles, which is more than a day's journey, just to cause a ruckus again. And when I read that, I'm like, golly, get a hobby. You know, like, I don't even want to travel 50 miles to go to stuff I want to go to, much less to go to something that I don't want to go to. And these guys are taking a day off work to go stir up trouble because they're infuriated that Paul is proclaiming the gospel. So now Paul leaves on his own this time. Um, Silas and Timothy, they stay back in, uh, in this area in order to continue to disciple uh, these new converts to the faith. And then Paul goes to Athens. We'll look at that next week, which is about 300 miles um, from Berea. Uh, and then he calls for Silas and Timothy to come to him. We'll see a little bit more about that uh, next week. So, so here's my point in all this. We have one message, the gospel, communicated through one book, the Old Testament scriptures, because remember, there's no New Testament at this time yet. One message through one book to two people in two cities with two different responses. Why? What made the difference? And I think what we see here is it has to do with the heart of the hearers. In Matthew chapter 13, uh, Jesus tells the parable of the soils, or the parable of the sower. And uh, many of you know it well. We looked at it um, maybe last, two summers ago, summer of 2020. You've got the hard soil, which won't even receive the seed. You've got the rocky soil, right, which is shallow and can't really grow deep roots. You've got the thorny soil, right, where the thorns kind of grow up and and kill out uh, the, the fruit. Of, of the seed, three quarters of the seeds reject, sorry, three quarters of the soils reject the seed, which is kind of a bummer, right? 
But then he says, there's a good soil, which, which are people with transformed hearts. So that the hardened soil won't even accept the word, right? The hardened heart won't even accept the word. The rocky soil has all kinds of, of other you know, temptations and distractions going on that keep it from really growing deep. The thorny soil is the heart that just gets overwhelmed by, um, by problems and issues and, and sort of abandons. And then there's this good soil, which is a transformed heart. And so, you know, you read that and you think, okay, well, I want to be good soil, but here's the problem. I can't transform my own heart. <laughs> I can't make myself have a soft heart in order to receive the truth of God's word. The only way that the soil is made capable of receiving the word is by the work of the divine gardener. That the Holy Spirit alone has to till up the hardness of our hearts. The Holy Spirit um, removes the stones and cuts out the weeds and the thorns and he convinces us, the Holy Spirit does, of who Jesus is, right? Of what he claimed. It's the Holy Spirit that actually brings conviction to us that, that what the scripture says is actually true. And many of you know what that conviction feels like. That before you were a Christian, you read the scriptures and there was this sense in you that this is true, but something in you didn't want to believe it. And there's this internal wrestle. Or maybe some of you are dealing with a particular issue, struggling with a certain doctrine or a certain sin. And when you come across it in preaching or in the word of God, there's conviction and you are wrestling against it. Listen, it's the Holy Spirit's job to make the soil of your heart soft, but it's your responsibility, it's my responsibility to respond to the Spirit. That's on us. So we have to ask the question, what is the condition of my heart? Where am I today in relation to God and his word? Do I receive the word with gladness and eagerness like the Bereans? Do I study the scripture? Do I, do I receive the truth of God's word and let it shape me and mold me? Or do I stand at an arm's length and I'm rejecting the word of God? I'm rejecting the truth of the scripture. I'm rejecting who Jesus is because I just don't want it. And yet there's a conviction. Yet there's a, a growing sense in me that this is true and it's real, but I just don't want to, to, to give myself over to it. Do you sense any prompting, any conviction from the Spirit? My challenge to you this morning is to respond to him. Let us be a people with open hands, with open hearts, with open minds, right? When we read the Scripture, when the Scripture is read and preached, and, and when we come across the Word of God, that we, we let it do the work that God intends to do by the Spirit, through the Word, in our souls, transforming us, making us more like Jesus, making us these people who turn the world upside down in our joy, in our humility, in our love, in our acts of, uh, of sacrificial service to others because we are living like Jesus as his ambassadors in this world and we are being transformed day by day, renewed into his image by his Spirit and his Word. I'm not going to throw any questions up on the screen. I just want you to wrestle uh, with this passage today. But I do want to pray for you. And uh, Lord willing, we will see you again next Sunday. Uh, church, I'm so thankful for you. I love you. I'm grateful to be your pastor. Grateful for you spending time with us this morning. So let me pray. And that'll conclude our gathering for this morning.
Father, I thank you so much for these men and women and even children who are joining us this morning uh, or this afternoon or whenever they're joining us. I pray, Lord, that this truth from Acts 17 would sink deep into our souls, that you would make us a people who are open to being persuaded by your word, who are um, challenged by it, who are um, molded and shaped into your image by your word and your spirit, that we wouldn't be offended by it, that we wouldn't reject it, um, but that you would do what only you can do in our souls um, because we need this transformation. So Lord, I thank you for this time in your word. I pray uh, your blessing over these people. Um, and Lord willing, we want to gather again next week. Bless these people, I pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Church, I love you. God bless you. Peace be with you.